It's The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. Taking a step back to look at things with a new perspective. It's The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Good afternoon, I'm Anthony Weiner, and thank you for meeting me in the middle of an hour every Saturday at 2 when we take some steps away from the hot takes of the far left and the far right. And we try to bring some context to the news of the week or maybe a subject that doesn't find its way into the middle of the conversation enough. So great to have you along. We have Ryan on the board, Camilla taking your calls, and Kevin supervising things. A number if you want to get in, it's a special number today, 833-969-4447. I'll be taking you to 3 o'clock, and then Curtis Sliwa comes in for left versus right. He will be fresh from the St. Patrick's Parade down in Rockaway, the kickoff of the parade season. One of my favorite parades. was down there in my district. Always enjoyed it. It was always chilly. This time of year always is. You can listen to us on good old-fashioned radio, 77 a.m. You can hear us all up and down the eastern seaboard late at night when Frank Morano and Curtis are on. You can always You can hear us all the way to the... Basically, all the way to, out down to South Carolina and all the way to the West. And you can always stream it on WABCradio.com. Great to have you along. You can reach me at, at Rep Wiener, R-E-P-W-A-N-E-R, WienerABC at gmail.com. Or, of course, 833-969-4447. The special episode today, well, it's special in that it is our 50th episode. But when I suggested maybe we make a big deal, do a montage, have special guests, I was reminded that it's really kind of a year that is the anniversary that most people celebrate in radio or anywhere else. No one cares the number of episodes, but things are going well here. I really do appreciate how supportive everyone has been. Um, the ratings have more than doubled since we came on the air. And the general idea of the show seems to be resonating. Other shows are are doing similar things now. This idea of doing deeper dives into the news, but from a perspective of Maybe not what you'll get, like in, in, you know, with a polemic on one side or the other, kind of trying to understand where the Venn diagram exists between Democrats and Republicans, between conservatives and liberals, where, you know, you want more information about the issue. You don't want to be just told that your side is right. And it seems to be working. It seems to work. I certainly know that I'm enjoying it. One of the things that I set out to do when I started this show was like I didn't want to I didn't actually want to do some of the stuff that I had done earlier in my life as a politician where you're basically have your side. You're going out and defending it every day and almost, you know, facts be damned. You take whatever is going on in the news and you try to spin it and make it make it work for your side. This has been enjoyable. Um, busy day in sports. All three of the New York hockey teams are in action. The Rangers play Boston. The Islanders play against Detroit, and the third one is not the Devils. It's the Buffalo Sabres there in action playing the Lightning. The Rangers, by the way, if you only watch, I mean, don't watch it now, but if you only watch one game, you may want to watch the Boston Bruins, who the Rangers are playing. They are on what could be a historic pace here in the regular season. They they are on course to win 65 games in an 82-game season, which would be the most ever. You know, they're go- they're just winning on both sides. You know, they're playing amazing defense, good offense. They their goal differential is 103. They're 50. You know, that's how many more goals you've scored than you've let in. That's 50 more than the next closest team. And um, so they're an, they're an interesting team to be watching. And in the East, the Rangers got better. They got Patrick Kane. It's not the old Patrick Kane, but Patrick Kane, who is uh, going to go to all the Hall of Fame when he retires, is one of the most prolific American hockey players. He has a spotty history. That we shouldn't gloss over, but that's not, it's not the time for that right now. Uh, so it was an interesting week. You, you, if you listen to episode 23 of this program, you were prepared for the Supreme Court arguments this week on the student loan relief program that President Biden, um, instituted. Uh, 
It was, you know, as I mentioned in that, I strongly defended the program and talked about the idea that this is a way that one generation helps out another. Um, but I did say in that episode that I was skeptical about whether Congress had truly granted the authority to do this. There was emergency authority granted um, uh, in in the law that they used, but the court seems to be skeptical that Congress intended for it to be this ambitious a program that was covered under that. But an interesting thing emerged, and a lot of the commentary has been that it looks like the Supreme Court is ready to rule that this is unconstitutional use of presidential power. But the one question that's come up that wasn't really answered that sometimes the Supreme Court will use, um, and that is who has standing? And the plaintiffs have really struggled to say why they have a right. It's a couple of states have sued this. But, you know, the doctrine of standing basically says that the plaintiffs, in order to bring an action, have to have three things. One, they have to show concrete injury. And they have to show a direct connection between the injury and the government's action. And the third thing is they have to show a potential form of relief that would redress that injury. And standing has been a problem because it's not really clear who's actually injured when the government wipes away student debt. Remember, the government already holds that debt already. Um, the government's already made that, that loan already. And, and just saying, well, my taxpayer dollars will go for it. No, that doesn't give you standing. That's true of everything. Um, and before the plan was even announced, they had quietly forgiven other debt that no one had complained about. So this will be interesting because this modern Supreme Court has taken this issue of standing and has used it. The conservative justices have used it very heavily, like when there are lawsuits to protect the environment or preserve church and state or, you know, argue against government surveillance. They've used this issue of people not having standing in order to let these laws stand. So it'll be interesting to see what happens um, what happens in this case, whether the Supreme Court will let that stand. So next I want to get to some of the numbers of the week. This is something that we do each week for those of you who are new to the program, um, where we take some of the numbers that emerged in the news and try to wrap some context around them for some of the stories that emerged this week. Um, this week the number uh, – one number is four. Of the 26 of the most popular conservative – television news networks and radio shows and podcasts and websites, only four of them um, have mentioned the story about Fox News. Uh, apparently, the Fox News host disparaging election fraud claims that they were then going to let on their airwaves. Essentially, all these court filings came out recently. Fox is being sued by this election company, this election machinery company called Dominion, Um uh, because their business was harmed by these fake stories that had been circulating and they sued Fox because Fox was told immediately that they were wrong and did nothing to stop them. Well, as part of discovery, all of these emails have now come out saying that these Fox hosts knew at the time what they were saying wasn't true and were trying and were saying them anyway. And then one of the things you have to show is that you knew knowledge. But the, this number of the week is how that story is not really getting covered in conservative media. Um, someone called into Steve Moore's show in the last half hour and mentioned it. Only four of them did. Um, next number is 5.2. These are the new homicide rates came out for the year 2022. 5.2 homicides per 100,000 residents. That's New York City's number. To give you some context, I'm looking at you, Ron DeSantis. Miami, 10.7. Jacksonville, 16.1. So if someone wants to talk about crime in big cities and how it just takes a good governor or whatever it is, Florida has a much higher crime rate than New York does. So, and so if you're traveling down to Florida to avoid the crime, um, stay away from Miami, stay away from Jacksonville, two of the cities. New York is not among the highest. It's down there in the 20s or 30s of big cities in terms of the murder rate. Uh, the next number is one that I want to use to kind of jump off to have a little bit more of a conversation about, and that is 79,671. That is the total number of deaths by COVID um, that we've had so far. There were 78 per day in the state over the last week or so. And I mention this because yesterday, March 3rd in 2020, that was the first reported case of a New Rochelle man in a midtown law firm that died from COVID. 
the first one. That was three years ago, almost exactly to the day. And since then, we've had 79,671 more. Um, this week, by the way, on my podcast, The Middle Unplugged, I looked at the news about the Department of Energy saying that maybe the virus came from a lab. Um, and what I wound up doing is to prepare for that podcast, I was reading and watching the news coverage about this. And I came across, I came across this audio of Ted Cruz talking about um, Anthony Fauci. Listen to this. Dr. Fauci is the most dangerous bureaucrat to ever serve in the United States government. The policies that he championed destroyed lives across this country. And repeatedly, he demonstrated a willingness to put politics ahead of science, ahead of medicine. And the result is it profoundly eroded the trust that millions of Americans have in our scientific and medical community, particularly in the government. That is dangerous going forward for the next health crisis we have. So I was looking around for stuff about this lab leak, and I see that clip, and and I got myself into a little bit of a rabbit hole. And I when I found Tucker Carlson saying that Fauci committed very serious crimes, quote, apparently engineered the single most devastating event in modern American history. Um, he, This is T- Tucker Carlson, a man who has done things in most countries and most times in history who understood perfectly clearly to be very serious crimes. And then I'm listening to, I think, Sid or Curtis was on one morning and they were commenting. And again, you know, did this whole thing about Fauci's a criminal. And so I started looking at this. And, you know, I've spoken a lot on this show about the idea that we get into our own information echo chambers, you know, things that get beaten like a drum on Fox and the New York Post, maybe even here on 77 WABC Talk Radio, don't even get a passing glancing message, um, uh, mention on places like MSNBC. You know, the Hunter Biden laptop was an example of that. Some of the president's lapses that, you know, forgetfulness or making stuff up don't even get mentioned there. Um, and by the way, the same is true in the other direction as well. It, you know, I mentioned that number of the week about um, about how conservative ra- radio and TV wasn't reporting about the scandal at Fox. And by the way, part of that, I didn't mention it in the number of the week, but part of that was, you may have heard this, that it came out in, in depositions and in emails that Rupert Murdoch was taking TV commercials from Joe Biden that he had access to and leaking them and giving them to um, the, to Donald Trump's campaign, like the idea that that the Biden campaign was being spied on by Fox. But but I wanted to understand a little bit more. So I had not heard kind of this demonization of Anthony Fauci. You know, I knew this guy a little bit when I was in Congress. He's a guy that's, you know, served for five decades um, under different presidents. He was cited by the first President Bush. Uh, you know, it's called a hero by that President Bush because of his work on AIDS and and SARS and the nation's highest civilian honor by the second President Bush, Republicans. You know, that he had kind of legendary kind of standing. And then 2019 comes along, and 2020, COVID-19 comes along. And my bias was that so much, like so much of the rest of the crap out there about COVID and, you know, misinformation and denialism, that – that the thing about about Anthony Fauci was going to be that way too. Conspiracy theories and disinformation, people not try, not not trusting science, or generally people not trusting authority. And what I found was frankly pretty surprising to me. Um, and when we get back from from the break, I'm going to go through kind of line by line what the criticism has been of Anthony Fauci. And to my surprise was not that it's – well, some of the stuff was unsurprising that it was like stuff taken out of context and stuff that was just made up out of whole cloth. And there was a lot of crazy stuff out there. Um, but I'm going to try to go issue line by line kind of what I did with the Hunter Biden laptop and say like here's something real and here's where it's not and here's where I think it's 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 legitimate. Here's where it's not. For me – this was the first kind of real look into some of the crevices of the internet and under, and, and even not even the internet, even just on Fox News and 
One America News and Newsmax and these kind of places to kind of get my mind and my, my, just to understand some of the venom facing Anthony Fauci. And I'll go through those and I will, I'm interested in hearing your take as well about what things you've heard that you think are true, what things you've heard that you think are unfair. We're three years now, um, since the onset of, of COVID-19. And there was a funny story in the newspaper just the other day how police um, officials had said they want storekeepers to demand that when when people come into their shops, they take off their masks so they can be identified on video camera in case they're shoplifting. We're going to talk a little bit about that as well. I'd like to get to hear what you have to say. 833-969-4447. That's the number this week. 833-969-4447. I'll be taking you up to 3 o'clock then. Left versus right with Curtis Lee. We're going to talk about his experience at the parade and also talk about a crazy idea in Florida to require anyone who blogs about politics to report to the government. Yeah, it's not it's not the onion. That's true. It's great to have you along in the middle, the 50th episode of The Middle. I'm Anthony Weiner, so great to have you along. See you on the other side. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner, 77 WABC. And welcome back to The Middle. I'm Anthony Weiner. We're talking about the third anniversary of the first death by COVID, and we're talking a little bit about a rabbit hole I went down into to try to understand the venom that gets directed at Anthony Fauci and how left and right look at him very differently. So let's just go through, and I'm, I'm basically, I've, I've explained to you what my posture was, did a podcast this week, The Middle Unplugged, episode 19, where I talked about this revelation, if we want to call it that that COVID-19 might have emerged from a lab in Wuhan. Basically, it was a non-news story that got really blown up in one area and kind of ignored in another area because one agency said that they came to a conclusion with low confidence. The other agencies of government didn't change their position. It wasn't based on any kind of evidence, just kind of, it was a weird thing. But I went into it and I, and one of the things I said in this episode is that there's no doubt that the idea that a virology lab existing in Wuhan, China, right where the first outbreak happened, no one should have eliminated that as a possibility right at the beginning. But we're going to get to that in a second. We're talking about Anthony Fauci, and, and, and I, I said I found this incredibly venomous language that was being used by by many on the right, including Senator Ted Cruz. I just played the cut where he says that he's basically the most dangerous bureaucrat in American history. And I, I started taking kind of notes on the different criticism, and there's a lot. But my bias going in was this is just like the rest of the things that happened in the COVID crisis that kind of people divided up by red and blue and believers and non-believers and whatever it is. But I was kind of surprised what I learned here. The first thing that he's accused of is being slow to see this threat. And what that's based on is in February of 2020. Remember, we're talking now a month or so before there was any deaths here. He says, you know, he said this is a quote right at this moment that there was the risk to the public was low and there was no need for people to change anything they're doing and even made a joke about you don't need to not go to Chinese restaurants and stuff like this. But he did say even in that those very, very first interviews, and I looked at a few of them, he did say things like this could change. And he says you've got to be concerned about community spread. Even in that one interview, he did say the words major outbreak could happen if you had community spread. But he did early on in February of 2020. Remember, that was a time when when really we didn't know what was going on. It hadn't even entered the real public consciousness in a, in a significant way. But when people point to that as being kind of like he lied and said there was nothing to worry about, there were a lot of caveats based upon based on what on what he said. The next thing is that he flip flopped on masks. And this is a much easier call because he clearly did. Um 
at the beginning, he kind of downplayed their efficacy. He downplayed whether you, you know, people were wearing them right. He basically tried to discourage people from buying and putting on masks. Now he later said, um, I mean, he had caveats in that too, but he later said that he did that. Why he changed his position, he says, is because I, he was fearful about there being a run on masks and that medical professionals wouldn't be able to get them. And he also said that there wasn't real understanding yet about how asymptomatic people could spread it. That's not true. He mentioned the, 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 the dangers of asymptomatic people spreading it as far back as January. And to the extent that he did change his view, he should have just said from the very beginning, I'm concerned about there being a run on these things. They probably work, but I'm concerned about there being a run, like being honest about it, not being manipulative. So this notion that he flip-flopped on masks. Now, some people believe that where he finished up was that masks are not helpful or that there's any doubt in the in the science that masks do help. Masks do help. Now that we know that it's respiratory, now that we know that it's droplets, now that we know you can be asymptomatic, meaning not knowing that you had it and carry it, there's no doubt that masks, that masks are helpful. But this idea that he flip-flopped on masks is completely, completely correct. There is this accusation that he lied about hydroxychloroquine. You remember chloroquine? Remember like there was this thing, you know, that, that for a while that was the thing du jour that he said that, that people were talking about, about that as a possible thing. And there was a lot of stuff on the internet about Fauci lied about that. And this is really kind of made up out of whole cloth. Well, not out of whole cloth, but here's where that came from. There was a Freedom of Information Act emails that were released to Fauci, and there was a doctor, uh, two doctors that said that this might possibly be effective because they'd seen it be effective before. He responds, take a look at this and respond to them, to a, a subordinate. Say, go take a look at this. And then there was one other email where another pharmacologist made reference to data from 2005 showing that this thing had worked. And so they said that he lied about it not working. Well, in fact, on both of these things, in the first one, he just referred the email to someone else. And the second one turned out to be a reference to a different type of COVID. And there was clinical research that showed that this hydrochloric was not beneficial. There was a lot of controversy around it, but some of the stories stuck out there on the Internet saying that he had give, he, he knew better. Basically, someone told him that it, that it worked and he ignored it. That just didn't turn out to be the case. A fourth thing that he's accused of is profiting from the disease. And this one, this one is a little bit complicated because there's no way he profited in any way from this particular thing. But there is this other issue about whether or not he has disclosed where, you know, where his income comes from. And he does get royalties when drugs that he helps develop. That's part of the law. Now, he he donates them, he says, and the the document, his financial statements are all are all out there, but they're not public records. You have to FOIL them. You have to request them, and they've been out there in the public. So long story short, what he should have done is said, I will make this these documents public, and I will explain clearly where I get my money and where I don't. And then the final thing is this controversy around the lab, and this one – he was too dismissive of the idea that it might come from a lab. Now he has all he had language that he used, where he says, "I don't see evidence yet. There's a possibility, but it's a small one." He dismissed too much the idea that this might have come from a lab. I, there's no real there's no real evidence that um, that it did come from a lab. To be honest, all it is is speculation. But there's plenty of circumstantial stuff to believe that, and that he was so dismissive of that was unwise at least. But I will say this, the summary, and there are other little things. There are like a lot of things that are out there that I'm not even touching on. They're like scandalous things that are just, that are just made up basically that are part of a conspiracy theory machine. But I will say this for all of the talk about him being, you know, him saying, well, we're just following the science. If you don't agree with what I said, it's because you don't like science or this whole idea that science changes, you know, it's experiment. We learn, The problem is that he demonstrated all throughout is that that included in that you have certain amount of responsibility as the scientist in chief, as the guy that we look to to explain this stuff, is to be 
a lot more clear that when you're saying things, you could be wrong. Or that when you're saying things, like we had to do a much better job defining what success was. We did not do a good job responding to this crisis, and he was the point man on it. And if the left thinks that he should be sainted, I disagree. And if the right thinks that he's the worst criminal bureaucrat since whatever, that's wrong too. And like a lot of things, it's somewhere in the middle. But he is definitely not without blame. A lot of the things that he is accused of being unclear about or being deceptive about are things that he didn't do a good job with. So that's my take on it. 833-969-4447. 833-969-4447. I'm taking you to 3 o'clock when Curtis Lewa comes in. On the other side, we'll take some of your calls. And it's really great to have you on the 50th edition of The Middle. to make change, reaching across the aisle to work with both sides. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. That's The Middle by Jimmy Eat World. We have Ryan on the board. Camille, you're taking your calls. 833-969-4447. Up until 3 o'clock, Curtis Lee, what comes in? We found a really crazy case. You might have... this. It, it is literally in Florida. They are proposing to require if you blog about politics and mention any elected official in Florida, you have to register with the state. Register with the state. This is getting downright Orwellian. Uh, it's, and also about about Fauci, there's one thing I did leave out, and it's a big one. It's this idea that there were NIH funds that went to this Wuhan lab for something called gain-of-function research. And that one, I, my brain isn't big enough to tell you about. It, they're essentially, gain-of-function is when you take something off a slide, uh, a virus, and you try to adapt it to see how it would behave out there in the world, meaning gain of like, like kind of literally what it says, gain of function. And Fauci said, absolutely no, there's no gain of function research done. The problem with this one, and hard for me to rule on it, you're just going to have to go look it up yourself, is that gain of function does not have a singular meaning to all all people who do research. Some Some people have said absolutely not. What happened in Wuhan was not gain of function. Also, it was a different virus. It's a long story, but that's another thing that people are like, oh, my God, he, we funded the spread of this disease. Um, it's a fair issue to talk about, but it requires more sophistication than it usually gets when people are just yelling back and forth to each other. So let's go to, go to some calls. Um, people are on the board about different subjects. Maybe they're not as taken with this. You know, Fauci, by the way, stepped down late last year. So he is no he served in, you know, as a point guy for Trump, served as a point guy for Biden for a brief time. Um obviously in every president before then when dealing with everything from monkeypox to SARS to AIDS where he originally burst onto the scene. So um to some degree this is an epilogue on his career, um but it's one that I found um I found interesting. Uh, first up let's go to Maxine in Fresh Meadows. Hey Maxine, welcome. Oh. Hi, Anthony Weiner. I'm a Seymour, the artist's daughter. You actually came to uh, when we had a playground named after him. Oh, yes, so of course. I to say hello to you how, also. How are you, Maxine? I found you. A, oh, I'm fine. In reference to staying on topic, I am very perplexed about just about everything when it comes to politics. And uh, what I have to say to you and the people that are listening, my father had a proverb from his uncle who was deaf. And he said to my father, Seymour, that's life. So 
in reference to what you were speaking about with the pandemic and the Republicans and the Democrats, etc. I'm baffled. I'm baffled, but I want you to know that I was very impressed with you when you came to my father's playground naming, and I'm very glad to have spoken to you. So, and I'm very, you know, I was listening to everything that you said, and just about everything that you said, well, I agreed with. I appreciate it, Maxine. Yes. It's it's so great of you to to check in. Your father was a, a great man. Give my best to everyone in Fresh Meadows, and um, I appreciate the fact you listened to everything that I said, and still. You remain baffled. That means um, I, I still have some more work to work to do. Um, but I appreciate you checking in, Maxie. Next up is Robert in Suffolk County. Hey, Robert, welcome back to the middle. Hi, Anthony. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Biden trying to forgive student debt is illegal. It's unconstitutional. It violates the separation of powers between the executive and the legislative branch. Only Congress has the power of the purse. And Biden is acting like a dictator trying to get votes by removing debt. And there's no requirement that these students have to use the money to pay down the debt that they incurred, which was for career high-paying jobs. They certainly have the money to repay the debt in most cases. And if the loans are forgiven, wholly or in part, who's going to pay? The rest of us. So the states have a definite standing. Well, let me. Well, let's let's just stop this. Yeah. Well, let's let's just let's just clear up a couple of things. One, I did a whole episode on this episode twenty three. You can get it at the Red Apple Podcast Network, where I explained that a lot of those things that Chris, that um, Robert just said are not true. There is something called the Heroes Act which Congress gave to the president the authority in the case of national emergency of um, of waiving or modifying debt. And they gave him that authority in 2005, renewed it in 2007, and made it permanent. The question before the court is, did they mean it, <laughs> essentially? But the real problem is the last part. I just want to point this out, that Robert said, well, we're taxpayers, so everyone has standing. No, that's not the way standing works. Standing, there has to be, you know, a, a, a concrete injury to an individual person or an institution, a direct connection between the injury and the government's action and a potential form of relief to redress the injury. When the um, when the plaintiffs were asked, why do you have standing? They couldn't really answer the question. I mean, because it's none of those things. Remember, the government already holds this debt. So and it's and just to be clear how the structure of it, it's just to have the debt waived it is not giving anyone money and it's 400 billion dollars because that's a lot over 30 years so just to give you an idea the trump tax cuts were 2.1 trillion over 10 years so i mean look i believe in it but i do believe this question is a reasonable one what's called the major the major question doctrine that the supreme court has kind of wrapped its arm around kind of like if it's a really big thing Congress has to say specifically what they intend. And in this case, Congress did say, the legislature did say in something called the HEROES Act, that you can waive or modify debt in case of a national emergency. And this was a national emergency. I mean, if arguably it's a much bigger national emergency than, 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 uh, than, than others that we've seen because it affected just about, um, just about everyone. Um, next, let's go to Chris, uh, checking in for the Catskills. Welcome back, Chris. Hey, good afternoon, Anthony. The uh, train derailment situation in Ohio, it brings up uh, the need, definitely begs the need for government intervention to regulate an industry that is unwilling to regulate itself properly. When I was an elected official, I had a situation. I was knocking on the door of a household of voters, and there was one registered voter in their mid-20s with the Independence Party, the third largest one back uh, eight years ago, and the parents were in their 50s, had never voted before. One of them I knew from high school, uh, they started telling me about a situation. They lived right on the railroad tracks, and it was a situation where CSX, the commercial freight line through New York State, had left some construction debris. On the on the road, that was the second most dangerous intersection in the entire county, and the homeowner's uh, van was getting 
hung up on the construction stone. And so were guests that were coming over the house. And uh, they contacted the railroad prior to this about something they witnessed where they were able to ascertain that the rail company installed the wrong type of track and that the the cars they could see out their kitchen window were buckling, that there's different types of rail track that you install, whether it's a straightaway or a bend. And they notified the rail company. They went and fixed the problem, and they left behind a bunch of construction stones. Yeah. So I promised to them that I'd get it cleared up. I had to make two phone calls to CSX Railroad uh, to their headquarters in Florida, spoke to the same employee. They made all kinds of promises that they were going to notify the three residences on the street, and they were going to document everything in the computer and fix the problem. I checked up on it like four weeks later. The problem hadn't been fixed. And so I called up, and I had to jump ugly with the same employee down at CSX. Yeah, I mean, look, Chris, here's what I, I hear you. I mean, look, what you're touching on, and I appreciate your, your call. It sounds like you did everything that you could as an elected official. And I we talked about this two weeks ago on episode 48. You know, you you have this fundamental conflict that emerges when you have big business that is functioning. They're supposed to be regulated. There's all kinds of regulatory agencies, Department of Transportation, and, and all, the, 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 the National Transportation Safety Board. There's a, there are railroad um, agents. But when, when you have these big businesses that are basically governed by rules and regulations that are promulgated by an administration, two, one of two things can happen. One – an administration comes in that doesn't feel that they want to be anti-regulation, and so a lot of those regulations go away. And two, when you try to put regulations in place and these these railroads come in and they start lobbying against them, generally speaking, even the best best meaning bureaucrat, even the best meaning administration gets rolled by the influence of money in, in this system. And the other thing that happens is these railroads run through low-income areas. And these are people who are not as empowered politically. They're people who can't make $1,000 contributions to their local politicians. I said I was going to check this, and sure enough, I found that the local congressman in that area in, in, in East Palestine, Ohio, had indeed gotten plenty of contributions from the railroads. I mean, it is – it's a problem. It, it is really a a, 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 um, a David and Goliath situation. And by the way – as I also, as I said last week, there's over a thousand derailments every year. There was one this week, propane in Florida. And for those of you wondering, no, Ron DeSantis didn't show up. Everyone's saying, how come Biden doesn't go? Um, propane in um, uh, um, uh, in in Florida. Uh, next up, let's go to our friend Tony and Clifton. Tony, welcome back to the middle. Hey, Anthony, how are you? Long time no chat. Nice to speak to you again. Thank you. So I wanted to tell you, uh, as someone who intensely watched the COVID, I was like everyone else home, and I was kind of fascinated by the whole thing. In in just two sentences, I see a conundrum in Anthony Fauci. I see, on one hand, he's, to me, the modern-day Dr. Frankenstein, if you will. And then on the other hand, I see that the system kind of didn't rein him in, and the system didn't do its job either. So I just wanted to get that out there. You know, he was only as powerful as they would let him be. And he was one person saying everything to us when we really, I don't think anyone should be the one that's the only one. And that's my thought. Yeah. No, Tony, you, you, here's the thing is that I, I am, look, I mean, to some degree, you had other people, you had Burks, you had Donald Trump, you had other people. But he was the guy that was put forward as being the sober fact science guy. And I, until I did a lot of this research, and still today, I believe the guy's an honorable guy. He's devoted his life to public service. I think he's very smart, et cetera. But in an environment that we that we live in today, that you can't – I mean this is a tough thing to see. You can't afford to be wrong in that environment. And if we all now accept, left, right, and middle, accept that our response to COVID was not good – he can't just say, well, I was just following the science. I was just following the science. He made mistakes. He did. And he opened, you know, I don't think there would have been none of this, but he opened the door for, for division around the issues that I think that in one way Ted Cruz was right about. In the future, it's not going to hold us in good stead. Now, he was certainly not the only one that did this. I mean, Donald Trump was saying in January and February of 2020, 
how great the Chinese were doing in managing this problem. Then he changed his position to it's a it's a worse attack than Pearl Harbor. Really? It's a worse attack than Pearl Harbor. How come you're not attacking them back Um, to then being it's not that bad. It's the Wuhan flu. It's just the flu. You don't have to worry about it. It's just a flu. So, you know, the president is ultimately the person that was speaking for this and was doing a lousy job. And if you you don't take my fort, you know, Burke's the person who was his. His lead on this wrote in her book about what a what an erratic and miserable job the president had done about all this. But Fauci gets and Tony's right. You know, maybe he was given too much authority to go out and speak to these things because I, my family, Tony's family, all of our families were looking at one authoritative place to get information. Did we get it over three years? Still today, you have people like Sid and, and Curtis saying, oh, masks are a waste of time, like, you know. I mean, there's still a lot of and and that you cannot say that the whole system failed, but Fauci was fine, and the and the the right wing is coming at him unfairly. A lot of this, I you know, a lot of he he brought a lot of this in an, on on himself. Um, before we go to break, let's go to Adam in Long Island. Go ahead, Adam. How you doing, sir? Uh, I just wanted to say I appreciate your show. Uh, I'm a Democrat, and I like the way you come down the middle on everything. And they need to give you more than 60 minutes, sir. And well, I just wanted to commend you on that. Well, I appreciate it. It's very kind of you to call, Adam. I'm grateful for the time we have. I also have the 60 minutes that we do with Curtis Leo at 3 o'clock and then my podcast, The Middle Unplugged. You can get that in the middle of the week. It's certainly nice of you, Adam, to check in. They used to say there's nothing in the middle of the road but dead possums and yellow lines. I don't think that's right. I think there's room in the middle. Listen to Jimmy Eat World. He'll tell you about it. Um, we'll see you on the other side. A few more calls and then left versus right with Curtis Lee. It's the middle with Anthony Weiner, 77 WABC. Welcome back. Joe Jackson bringing us back in. Ryan on the board. Camelia taking your calls. 833-969-4449. We're talking about Fauci, student debt, railroad derailment. Give you an update on the hockey scores. The Islanders are pulling away from the Red Wings 4-1. to uh, Bruins leading the Rangers 2-1 to after 2. And the Buffalo Sabres beating the Tampa Bay Lightning. Let's go back to the, the phones. Uh, next up is John in Staten Island. John, welcome back to the middle. Hey, uh, Anthony. I was going to make well, – I got a question about Hunter, but my quick comment about Fauci. Fauci was the, the head of uh, all this medical stuff. You know what? He's been sending money so they could kill animals in other countries because we can't do that here. Any person that wants to send our tax dollars – to put beagles into cages with stamp fleas and cut their throats so they don't hear the screams. I don't have no respect for a person like that. Those are individuals that have no shame. But my point with Hunter is this. You had the no bail law they were trying to do. I mean, does Hochul and all these other people say if somebody steals a purse, uh, is it black or white, it should be the same? So you have Hunter on videotape, because we're not talking about financial stuff. But you know what? He was carrying a gun, which he shouldn't have had, and he'd show him with a girl counting up grams of coke. Shouldn't he be doing his time like every black person or every Spanish person that gets caught with, with drugs and guns? I mean, four years ago, five years ago, this is all shown. Why is a white guy get away with it while a black or a Spanish guy goes right to jail? Well, that let me take the last one first. I appreciate you calling, John. That's You're referring to Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is under investigation by the U.S. attorney in Delaware that was appointed by um, uh, Donald Trump. When President Biden came in and Merrick Garland came in, they said, we're not going to touch that prosecutor because we don't want there to be any appearance of impropriety. We're going to keep this Republican prosecutor there who was close with Donald Trump. 
Um, I don't know why it's taking. It does seem like it's taking a very long time. Now, a couple of the speculation that is that has emerged was about just what you're talking about, not necessarily the cocaine part of it, but the idea that he lied on a gun application um, because you can't. You, you know, they ask you if you do you do drugs, and he clearly was doing drugs. He says so in his own book. As far as Beaglegate which is another thing that's out there on the internet about Fauci. I have to confess, um, I saw that one and I didn't even click on it. So someone else has to go do it. I don't believe that he was found, unless they do have it here in my notes. I, I mean, I just, there was so much that I wound up going after when I um, I reviewed all of this. Let me just see if I did look up anything. He is accused of... Um, of, uh, of doing, of funding research that harmed animals. And I'm not in favor of that either. I don't have that in front of me, so I can't really help you. So we'll have to take, uh, take Robert's word for it. Uh, next, let's go to Sandy in New Jersey. Hey, Sandy, thanks for calling. Hi, how are you? Thank uh, you. I'd like your opinion on, I was watching Fox News last night, and they were interviewing an 11-year-old boy. I believe he was from Maine. And he was reading passages from a book he took out of the library. His parents were there and also the school board. I'm surprised they let him continue reading. It was very pornographic. I'd like you to Google it. Don't take my word for it. Google it and listen to it. I know your son is roughly 12 or 13, and same with um, Curtis. And uh, in the next hour, I'd like to hear Curtis's opinion on it. Well, I appreciate it. The name of the book is called Nick and Charlie. Nick and Charlie. Okay. Listen, I appreciate it, Cindy. Here's what's been going on around this, and I think I'm going to devote an episode to it maybe even next week, is this idea of should we limit what books are available in libraries? Should we limit what books are available to kids? Should we edit what's in those books, et cetera? I think that the most important thing that you said in that description was that the the child's parents were nearby as this was going on. I do think that it's reasonable for parents to put limits around – Jordan's 11, by the way – put limits around what their kids get to read. I do think it's reasonable for schools to try to make decisions about what's appropriate to have in their libraries or not. I think that's totally reasonable. I think it's reasonable for parents to ask questions about how those decisions are being made. Here's what worries me. I don't believe that it's government's place to start drawing lines around books – Hence to start saying this is good or this is bad. I believe that these decisions should be made as close as possible to the individual people that are doing the reading, meaning as close as possible to that kid, to his teachers, to his parents. That's where these decisions begin. Because remember, you can take dozens and dozens and dozens of books and find things that you and I might say, well, I find that offensive for Jordan to be reading. You know, we had a real-life example of this recently. Roald Dahl, who, by the way, is, he wrote Willy, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He wrote uh, BFG. He wrote, I think, Matilda. He's one of the most – he's passed away, but his estate is one of the most profitable writers in the world. Recently, the estate said, we're going to start editing these books to make them more politically correct for the times, meaning take out references to someone being fat, references to a woman wearing a – a, a wig or something like that. And the, it got international, bipartisan, across the board condemnation. The idea of trying to scrub a book that is so beloved that kids read. All the time, Jordan will turn to me and say something he's reading and ask for context for it, ask to have it explained. All the time, these books are opportunities for us to teach lessons to kids. If we're going to start to say, because some outrageous passage was read on Fox News, I want it to be banned, the question is who does the banning? Now, I know how appealing it is as an issue for politicians. It's catnip. It's outrageous. We're protecting our children from these vile whatever. But all too often, all that is is government saying, I'm going to substitute the, the a legislature in, in, in Sarasota is that where, or Tallahassee in Florida for the judgment of a family, an individual family in Dade County. I am very suspicious of that. I don't want a state legislator or Ron DeSantis or Governor Hochul or making these decisions for my local school or making these decisions for my I – am, I, am, I am aware enough that I can go and ask a teacher 
uh, to I to see the the reading list to understand what kind of decisions they make around these things. So the question isn't what's appropriate and what's not. The question is who gets to make those decisions. How are we as a society going to make those decisions? And are they the same decisions I would make for Jordan as for another kid? And do we want a politician who's trying to get on Fox News to be making those decisions? I mean, it is not hard to take works, literature, art, anything, and to extract um, extract from them outrageous things that might maybe today uh, might be inappropriate or maybe they never were. I mean, look at Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn. I mean, I, I guess that's, that's the point. So I'll, I'll go ahead and, and I'll take a look at that and I'll take a look at the segment. And let me just say another thing here. And this gets back to what I said at the beginning about the mission of this show and the conversation we're having about Fauci. It is not hard if you're Fox News to say, let's try to find something that pisses people off, that infuriates them, that makes them angry. That because anger and, and animus is the, is the fuel that makes our modern conversation and politics go around. Left and right, let's see if we can get them angry at each other as much as possible. When in fact, we all probably agree, parents of all stripes agree that there is, there is an appropriateness that we want to see reflected in, in, in reading material, in sexual education, in education about race and the like. But just yelling, you know, just yelling at each other is not the way to go forward. And I want to thank all of you for who join in on this show each week. We don't yell at each other. Some people tune in wishing I would. Sometimes, you know, Chad and John and Margaret says, where's that old Anthony Weiner who used to get up on the floor of Congress and yell and scream? I'm maybe not that guy anymore. But fortunately, we have a place here at 77 WABC where we can have conversations like this. We can let them breathe, breathe a little bit. We can respect one another and we can come back again next week. And that's certainly what I'm going to do for Episode 51. Thank you so much for joining in. At 3 o'clock on the other side of the break, Curtis Lewa comes in, left versus right. He's going to give us his report from the Rockaways. And we're also going to talk about some of the controversies around how much we're spending to house and clothe migrants that are coming in from the south of the border. I'm Anthony Weiner. Thank you so much for joining us. See you on the other side.